Welcome to Profit First Nation, the official podcast for entrepreneurs who are operating their businesses in the zone of permanent profitability. I'm Mike Michalowicz, the author of Profit First, and now here's your Profit First Nation guide, Daniel Mulvey. Welcome to Profit First Nation, the podcast for the top 17% of entrepreneurs with cash in the bank to correlate to their profitability. Profit First Nation is the podcast for intelligent entrepreneurs who have taken ownership of their financials and leveraged Profit First as a cash management system to make their businesses permanently profitable. I am Danielle Mulvey, an expert at guiding entrepreneurs on owning their financials in as little as 11 minutes per day and doing Profit First right. If you are a fan of Profit First and its author, Mike Michalowicz, you have found your tribe. We are a nation of successful entrepreneurs driven to be permanently profitable with a grit and a growth mindset that lets no obstacle stand in our way in pursuit of the three P's, passion, profit, and play. On Profit First Nation, we dive into advanced Profit First strategies and guide you through on how to do Profit First right. On today's episode, we are going to welcome a very special guest, Greg Crabtree, CPA, speaker, author, entrepreneur, and financial expert. Greg founded his own firm, Crabtree, Rowe, and Berger, to focus on helping entrepreneurs build their economic engine. After being named to the Inc. 5000 list for 2019, Greg's firm merged with Carr, Riggs, and Ingram, CPAs and advisors, a top 20 U.S. accounting firm, to help broaden their impact on the entrepreneurial community. In 2011, Greg's first book, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits, was published, and it is a must-read. In it, Greg shares his core principles on how to turn your business into a wealth-building machine. In 2014, Greg contributed a chapter to Vern's book, Scaling Up, which we've talked about on this podcast numerous times as well. And this past November 2020, as again highlighted in this podcast numerous times, Greg released his newest book, Simple Numbers 2.0, Rules for Smart Scaling. I have been a super fan of Simple Numbers since I first read it in 2017, so I am totally fanning out that Greg is here today to bring his brilliance to y'all. Welcome to the Profit First Nation podcast, Greg. Yeah, Thanks, Danielle. Appreciate that. Happy to be here. So... Let's talk about you have the two books mm-hmm. and you have the first book, um, Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits. And then you have your newest book, Simple Numbers 2.0. And why don't you talk a little bit about how those two exist in the same world for entrepreneurs? Yeah, it, I, I kind of described the two books. Uh, I wrote them to where they can stand alone in themselves in that it's more about the size of your business than uh then one builds on the other. Certainly, there's some, some concepts we expand on and go deeper in in the second book. Uh, like I, I do a deeper dive in the labor efficiency ratio uh, concept in the second book, and that's something that a lot of people had asked for. Uh, but, but I would say the second book is, is largely, you know, knows no bounds of start to finish, but it's more so about a business that is in that stage of truly scaling, growing 20% plus a year, 
and and you really want to make some good dis- decisions on scaling. The first book is clearly focused on the five million and undersized business to try to to kind of shake the the bad thinking that exists out there. It's just some some you know some some you know cocktail party advice that seems to to run amok in the entrepreneur community and really damage some really good businesses that can succeed. But yet they just they're just living off of this dumb idea that got passed around and either they missed a critical piece of understanding it or, you know, they they just bought into kind of a fool's dream. And 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 really, I would say that I've in my consulting practice, I've rarely found a business that couldn't succeed. But it's just that some of these dumb ideas and distortions that we do with our business and tell ourselves stories, a lot of the things that, you know, profit first and in Mike's book. Uh, you know, kind of helps people get their arms around things in a practical way, kind of in a non-accountant way uh, that that really helps them finally get get stabilized. And then you get to decide, do I have a really good business that I just need to harvest the profits from? Or do I have a business that can scale and become a phenomenal wealth building tool? Yeah, um, that makes me want to jump to a topic in 2.0 um, mm-hmm. based off of, of yeah. you talking about that just now. I mean, this is like a choose your own adventure podcast. So <laughs> yep. um, we we can talk about, you mentioned, because I mean, we probably could create 10 episodes on one conversation, mm-hmm. but um, so choose your own adventure. Topic number one, we can talk about, you know, an example of talk you hear at a cocktail party, or uh, we can talk about return on investment capital, because I had a, a tough conversation with some individuals. Well, I, I, I let, let, let's hit the return on invested capital because the the, okay. th- the thing and th- there's a reason why this this idea kind of percolated. And what's interesting is I actually just came out of the studio a couple of weeks ago, and I finally recorded the audiobook version that should be available oh. here in a couple of months. So the first book, and I'll go back here uh, in a couple of months and record the second book as well. But I've had a lot of requests and just hadn't gotten around to it. And so what's interesting is I actually. You know, for the first time, reread the first book during the po- doing the audiobook, and uh, you know it, it's kind of humorous. You know, you, you go back through and you read it, and I finished finished up the two days of recording to do it, and I go, you know, that was a pretty good book. <laughs> so <laughs> it's it, it is kind of one of those that you really get a sense of st- you know because I, I literally had not read every word since I finished right. it in 2010 was probably when the the writing got done. And and it's like, oh, yeah, you know, that does stand the test of time. Um, and, you know, but even in the first book, there's several places that I had forgotten that I had alluded to this idea of return on investment. And, uh-huh. and I got to really advance that idea of return on invested capital through, I, I get to chair a executive ed course for entrepreneurs organization at Horton Business School. So it's pretty good that, you know, a, you know, a kid from a chicken farm you know, with an undergrad degree, gets to hang out with like legit professors, you know, at, at Horton. And and I get to share some of my content as well. And, and you know, and that really helped me understand and validate, you know, a lot of these ideas. And I even have changed some of the those professors' thinking because they largely deal with public companies in their models and in class materials. And and I kind of brought some private company examples and, and really have kind of even, you know, help some of them kind of think about it. But I, I clearly have to credit Professor David Wessels with this idea of return on investment capital and understanding it in a way to bring it to the entrepreneur. Because at the end of the day, that is the 
critical KPI that you need to focus on. If you're not getting a return on your investment, why are you doing this? You, you have a job with all the headaches of ownership. I mean, what good is that? And, and, and so, so really, you know, what you're trying to accomplish and, and say, well, of the money that I invest, which is sweat equity, cash I put into the business, salary I go without at times, profits that I pay tax on and leave in the business. Those are all capital inputs to the business. What is your return once the business stabilizes within a 12 to 24 month cycle of, of, of time to get an activity up and going? And and a reason why I use it this way is I'm always trying to get the entrepreneur to separate the what I talk about in the first book. You get paid a salary for what you do, get a return on what you own. And, and so I want them to understand the return on what you own piece to keep their hand out of the cookie jar and say, if your business can scale, you need to keep reinvesting in this because it's far better than the start market will ever be. And, and our data shows clearly the minimum acceptable return on invested capital of a, of a U.S. business that, that we've seen is 50%. The average is between 75 and 100. We've got multiple business models that achieve over 200% annual return on investment. Wow. Now, those are the ones that obviously become very valuable to sell because a business that only requires 200,000 of invested capital that's making you 400,000 a year net profit after market-based wages, that, that's a pretty profitable business that somebody's willing to pay a, a significant premium for. That's why they're going to pay a 10 times EBITDA or even a 15 times EBITDA in some cases if they feel like you've got some more run to do that they can, they can help create. And, and so it's getting you to understand that piece. And then on top of that, the, there's a critical chapter in the new book that talks about the replacement return decision. And, and this is something we, I, I probably have this discussion about every other day with our clients right now because there's so much M&A activity that, you know, they're thinking about selling their business. And I said, well, that's that sounds like a good idea. But let's let's go through the example of if you sell your business and you take the net after tax proceeds uh, to reinvest, will, can you get an investment return that's even close to what you were getting out of your business and net profit? And the answer in most of the cases is not even close. That I mean, you need right. to keep your business. Yeah. So, and, and you need to really keep track of this invested uh -huh. capital yeah. that is going into your business. I had a conversation with two gentlemen, you know, brilliant guys, Google engineers in their day jobs and such, and they bought a laundromat. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it, they sent me their financials. <laughs> And they bought the laundromat, not any physical, they, they, they bought a laundromat business. Yeah. Um, they don't own the building. They paid $350,000 for the laundromat. They uh -huh. then invested another um, $270,000 in new equipment. And I said, okay, you guys are over $500,000 into this. And they're like, what? We are? <laughs> and I, yeah. Because they, they borrowed uh -huh. to make these investments and such. And so they had no clue. And I'm like, yeah. you guys, like 350 plus 270, you are over yeah. $500,000. Yeah, exactly. And it was just sort of like, they've had this business for three years. And, you know, I they connected on Fix This Next about this and such. Mm -hmm. And it was just sort of like, 
why why you need to understand the capital going into your business. I mean, I I, mm-hmm. I just think that this was like a big aha the yeah. the fact that most people are not at all tracking how much they've invested in their business, yeah. and then for sure why you need to track the return on your capital investment. Well, it, it's it's one of those things that, you know, so I, my clients think that I'm anti-real estate and that could be the farthest from the truth in that I, I'm, I'm fine with real estate. I'm fine with owning a business. I, what I'm not fine with is making a stupid investment that's too highly leveraged for the wrong reason. And, and so the idea is there's a couple of good, interesting principles of finance that you can take from the real estate industry and apply to an operating business. And I, I have quite a few clients. I, I, I refer to them as my real estate entrepreneurs. And so these are entrepreneurs who operate real estate activities and they apply these principles so that they can understand essentially the, the concept is it's referred to as cash on cash return. And so if you so when you look at debt, debt comes in two forms. And so I make a big distinction in book one that and that you have to understand that debt is not capital. And and so there's a if you actually borrow money to buy a business that that you, you have goodwill left over, which good anytime you have goodwill in a transaction. It means there's not enough assets, net of liabilities, to make up the value of the purchase price. You paid for future value to get the business out of the hands of the owner, that there's not enough receivables, equipment, and those things to put on the balance sheet. You got to have a plug number. And and so anytime you have goodwill in a transaction, that's telling you how much you overpaid for the hard dollars that's there for the benefit of that ongoing income that, that business can generate. Not necessarily a bad thing, but you, you just need to be confident that it's going to generate that income. The other type of debt is essentially operational debt where you take um, real estate that you pay over a period of time, which is really essentially pseudo rent, if you think about it. If I also buy equipment that's operating equipment that has a depreciable useful life, I buy a, a vehicle. Well, that vehicle wears out. You got to replace it. I buy a piece of production equipment. It wears out and I got to replace it. And so I'm not, uh, you know, you know, Dave Ramsey's kind of the big anti-debt guy. And it's like, well, I, I think you just have to be smart with debt. And I'm a fan of using term debt to buy equipment and real estate with some reasonable down payment on the real estate and, and turn it into an operational cost. Because if I go buy, you know, a hundred thousand dollar piece of equipment and I amortize it over a five year period, and it's truly going to be functional for five years, I want that twenty thousand dollars that I paid a year as a note payment before interest. That that's really an expensive operation, and so I can operationalize it. And so when I think of return on invested capital, I, that's not a capital input. And so here's the best story I can tell you from understanding the return on invested capital. So uh, one of the, the, the EO guys in, uh, in Nebraska, um, I don't do his work. And so I used him as an example. And, and so I was doing a presentation and I said, well, Pete, I hear you're a great business owner. You know, you, you've got 15 transmission service stores. Let me see if I can use you as an example. And I'll guess at your numbers and you tell me how good I've made it as a guess. 
I said, you're thinking about opening up the 16th location. So that means that you got to go probably spend a million dollars for the dirt and, and to put up a metal building to open up your 16th location. And he said, yeah, that, that's, that's uh, pretty close to what we pay. This is great. Okay. So now the bank's not going to finance a hundred percent. So you got to put 200,000 down. So they'll finance 20%, uh, 80%. So you got 200,000 capital input of your down payment. Now the note that 800,000, that's essentially going to get recovered as operating rent that's going to be paid to the entity that holds the building uh, in, in the land. You know, so so think of that note payment, that monthly note payment as an expense, not as a principal and interest payment. It's it really gets captured that way. And now you've got another capital input. You've got you're gonna have about two hundred thousand dollars of opening cost and operating losses until that store breaks even somewhere in the fourth to fifth month of operation. He goes, Yeah, uh, that's uh, that's exactly the number we use. This is good. I'm a good guesser. So now you got $400,000 capital input going into this 16th location. Your go, no-go decision to go ahead with this is, do you believe that you can get to a $200,000 a year run rate of profit for that location, which is $16,667 a month, by the 12th to 24th month of operation? That's a green light business deal. That means that you're operating at a minimum 50% return on investment because it's your investment is not a hundred and not a million dollars. Your investment is two hundred thousand dollars down on the property plus two hundred thousand dollars of upfront cost and operating loss coverage until you break even. And and he, he kind of laughed and he smiled. He says, "Well, that's kind of interesting." He said, "What you just told me in two minutes took me thirty years to figure out." <laughs> and, and, and I will tell you, we have applied this idea over and over and over again, whether you're a multi-unit operational business, whether you're trying to launch a line of, of a business you're doing, you know, most businesses don't do just one thing. You typically do two or three things. And so as you segment and operate those businesses in their, in their lanes, you can apply this thinking to it. And some businesses don't have you know, a down payment on real estate, you just have to incur, you got to go hire people. You got to spend marketing money to, to, you got to cover losses until when do you break even? And, and the sum of those losses from start of activity to when it breaks even is your capital input. And then you got to keep driving to get to, if my capital input is $200,000, when is it going to produce at $100,000 a year run rate? Because that's what success looks like. And oh, by the way, I don't really want to stop at 50. That's the minimum number. I really want it to be 75 to 100 or, or more. Okay, that totally makes sense. And um, thank you for clarifying that. And you guys, I mean, if you're bookkeeper or accountant, I mean, Greg's a CPA and cannot explain things to you where you understand it and lose the jargon like Greg just did, then you need to find Greg's group or you need to find a profit-first professional who has the heart of a teacher and connect with someone like that so that you can understand because you have to understand everything to own your financials of the business that you own. And 
Greg, I would love to invite you back um, because we only hit on one topic, <laughs> and um, we uh, we we are we are running towards the end of our of our episode time. Yep. Um, how can people connect with you? I mean, of course, I'm excited because um, I was surprised because I was wanting to refresh the book and just yeah. listen to it in the car because I had a a, a lengthy drive um, over the last couple of weeks, and I was surprised that there was no audio. So I'm excited yep. to yep. hear that it's on your. 10th anniversary year of the original publication that you have that coming out. Um, and I encourage you to get 2.0 uh, recorded sooner rather than later too. But of course, people can get your books on Amazon. Um, but uh, otherwise, how could they also connect with you? Well, um, you know, certainly reach out via email, greg.crabtree at cricpa.com. Uh, so that's obviously easiest direct. Um, the book website, the book kind of has its own website, simplenumbers.me. And so there's, um, you know, if people want to make a bulk order of the books or, or we can sell individuals there, but it, it's just as easy to buy them from Amazon, obviously. Um, but there's also some downloadable tools. We're going to be adding some stuff to the website, um, you know, for that. Uh, and there's some videos that, you know, I've done a ton of presentations on both books over the years that there's links to those. Um, so there's also a contact page if you want to just contact us directly from the simple numbers.me side as well. But, but really kind of the way that we look at things is we've tried to change the, the interface. And so, whereas most other accountants do taxes and financial statements and bookkeeping, and oh, by the way, when we have free time, we'll do consulting. We, we turn it on its end and say, listen, consulting is the most important thing. Because if I can't help you run a better business, the other stuff is just a commodity that, eh, you know, it, and, it, and it's fraught with a lot of lack of insight. And so we lead with consulting. And so, you know, from that consulting arrangement, then if you need taxes, financial statements or uh, outsourced bookkeeping services, we can provide those. But it's like we, we don't, we, you know, you can, you can keep your, if you like your tax preparer, we don't care about that. You can work, work with them. But the key, we believe, is starting with this consultative arrangement that we, you know, we kind of, and this will be on the simplenumbers.me side, you know, ways of talking about how we do kind of this initial planning session. We try to make it very cost effective to dig deep really fast. And then, you know, do you need help on an ongoing basis? Um, you know, and and so really it's kind of <laughs> kind of a little different thing from most of my peers in the accounting world. We, we only want to sell you what you want uh, and what you need. I don't need to sell you what we do. <laughs> and so uh, it's um, and, and, and we, we don't have any trouble staying busy. Uh, so we, we, we kind of think that that seems to work. But that that to me is the right way of doing things, um, much like I'm sure a lot of the, the profit First Nation folks, you know, are, are kind of like that as well in that. You know, it start, and this is really kind of what I start the second book with: is figure out what the market needs, and that's really what we did. Is we went back to the drawing board and say, "Listen, what the market needs is better guidance on how to run a better business, and then taxes are an outcome from that. Financial statement requirements, if you have you know significant financing needs or those things. I will tell you this: this is a little dirty little secret. Um, we help our clients get so profitable they rarely need a bank other than to put their money in. Um, yeah. it, you know, it, it's, it's really, I, I, I'm, I've shocked myself over the last 15 years of just how little I interface with banks because my clients are, are more net depositors. Um, and boy, I tell you, 
we we saw this vindicated big time during COVID because I had no clients go out of business. Zero. Yeah. When you have cash in the bank, that means that you stay in business. Yeah. And so, yes, it was exciting the people um, who have implemented profit first, they mm-hmm. had the cushion. They yep. had it there. It wasn't it wasn't gone. It was banks yep. are banks are places to store money. That's what you need a bank for. Well, to store and, you, money. and you also see how to adapt and stay cash flow neutral, at least in a, mm-hmm. in the worst of all situations. And so that you're not burning through those resources uh, and, unless, you know, you just can't find a way. You got to kind of wait it out. But but I, I found very few few businesses that you know, believe in this reserving mindset that actually were cash flow negative during COVID. They might have been cash flow neutral, but but I I will tell right. you this. I mean, so the other thing that we do, so we have a hundred company model that we run, and and so our clients are all over the U.S., all different industries, and so we get an interesting picture. And so one of the things that our clients like on our ongoing calls is we kind of give them updates of what we see in the model because there is no really quality data of privately held businesses that are that's being reported on in the US because mm-hmm. nobody knows that nobody has the data well we we kind of uniquely have a, a national and international practice the hunter company model is just based on their US clients though and and it really is just it's just incredible insight to spot trends really quickly in the marketplace and and I will tell you um out of those hundred companies this past year, we ended up 2020 up six percent. Wow! Yeah, and it's it's a it's, the it's shittiest year of the yeah. And this last is a and, and to give you a size of the data set, I mean, this is a billion dollars of revenue, so it's it's wow. not an insignificant data set. And the and and we we didn't pick just the winners. We had we had people that were up and people that were down. But the group as a total, which I think is a pretty good basket indication of the of the U.S. privately held business economy. They were up 6% by the end of the year. Awesome. That's so great. Well, thank you so much for joining us and bringing some clarity. Definitely Profit First Nation, get Greg's books. Start with Simple Numbers, Straight Talk, Big Profits. Start there if you are in that scaling your business at $5 plus, then then definitely dive into 2.0. And we will have a visual recap like we do for all of our episodes with this episode so you can kind of track some of the numbers that Greg talked about and you can just kind of see it on paper if you're listening to this in your car. You can get our visual recap at ProfitFirstNation.com. Click on resources and there you can download the visual recap or you can also opt in to have it texted to you each week on Thursdays when a new episode comes out. And thank you again so much for joining us, Greg. Cheers to another profitable day, my entrepreneurial friends. Profit First Nation website, related podcasts, and resources are provided for general information purposes only and do not constitute accounting, legal, tax, accounting, or other professional advice. Visitors should not act upon the content or information found here without first seeking appropriate advice from an accountant, financial planner, lawyer, or other professional. 